You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 2. Today is a special day. If you follow the church calendar, which I know you all do, I know you get alerts on your phone. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, what in the world is that? Um, You say, do you have to be a Pentecostal church to celebrate Pentecost Sunday? No, but um, um, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Nothing wrong with being a Pentecostal church, by the way. Um, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and then I'm going to make some brief comments on this chapter, and really on the theme of this morning, becoming a church-planting church. What it means to become a church-planting church. Let me read. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't those these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants. In those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan of foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You've revealed to me the path of life. You will fill me with your gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke 
concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, he was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly encouraged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted the message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributing them uh, to the, at, distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is God's word to us this morning on Pentecost Sunday. Why, did, uh, why are we marking this? Why are we commemorating Pentecost, something that happened in history 2,000 years ago? Because I want you to be amazed at what happened then, and I want you to be even more amazed that what happened then is still happening today. This is what God is continuing to do through the faithfulness, the joy, the perseverance of ordinary men and women who gather in local churches to make Jesus big. The testimony you heard a moment ago from Nathan, who said yes to the call to be a servant and a shepherd of this local church that God planted, um, it is a testimony of God's grace uh, for our brother. God's grace that provides for us and sustains us while we are weak, while we wait for Jesus to come back and make our bodies new, to make everything new. And I can commend Nathan to you, along with Tyson or other elders, two men worthy of following as they follow Jesus. So let me tell you what this has to do with church planting, because that's what we're talking about today. See, the only way that the church grows, the only way the church has ever grown, is when local churches grow disciples of Jesus who multiply themselves. Men and women who, whose chief aim is to know and enjoy God more than anything else. With rock-solid faith that God is our supreme treasure, that he's infinitely worthy of all of our time, all of our talent, all of our energy, all of our ambition. And when those men and women like that are those that can look around the room and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me as an end in itself, but follow me as I follow Christ. And when we do that, then disciples are made. Disciples are multiplied. 
And then churches are multiplied. Churches are planted. And that's exactly what we saw happening in the book of Acts. It's what we see happening right now in 2022 in South Australia and what we long to see happen more and more and more until Jesus comes back. Everywhere, every space that exists on this earth that he made, we want to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God through growing disciples and multiplying churches. I shared our community prayer night on Wednesday. Um, something came across my feed uh, recently. I don't know the last time you've driven on the Southern Expressway south toward McLaren Vale. The next time you do, um, just look up for a minute. Keep your eye on the road, but look up for a minute. As you're coming up to South Road, you might notice that there's this green, grassy field that's been there forever, um, stretching from, you know, across the horizon. Um, Across my feed, um, you may know this, um, the Uncabriga Council is asking for feedback because that land is about to be developed, it's about to be released for 5,000 new homes. That land is going to represent people that are coming, people perhaps who already live in this area, perhaps who don't yet live in this area, people who are created in God's image, men and women, kids who are going to be living in those spaces. And so why do we plant churches? Because people matter to God. And only through the multiplication of disciples will those 5,000 homes know and understand and see the glory of God in ordinary men and women worshiping and gathering in his local church. That's why we plant churches. This is not a call to make city light great again or ever. Um, it is a call to participate in what the Spirit of God has been doing since the beginning of time for His glory and His fame, not ours. So ever so briefly this morning, I just want to just say just four things, point out from chap Acts chapter 2 um, to show you how it all began on that first Pentecost circa 30 A.D., and as we do, my prayer is that we also would be continue to grow in becoming a church planning church. So to do that, there's four things I want you to think about. Number one, I want you to think about what it means to receive the power of church planning. To receive the power of church planning. That's what we see right at the beginning of Acts 2. There's this power that no one had ever experienced comes down out of heaven onto ordinary men and women. And they begin doing things that they were not in their own power able to do. And that was to speak in languages they'd never studied. If you could summarize the message of Acts 2 in one phrase or one sentence, it would be this. The Holy Spirit who came down, the promised Holy Spirit who came down is a missionary spirit. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. The third person of the triune God, fully God. Jesus said he would send him onto his disciples after he went back to his father. And he did that. Everything Jesus said he would do, he accomplished. And the Holy Spirit is with us, dwelling in us now as believers, as he promised. Day of Pentecost, the self, the word Pentecost, the celebration didn't begin here. It was, an, it was already on the calendar. It was a Jewish festival. We see it in the Old Testament. It was the harvest festival, sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And what happens here in Acts 2 is not so much about a harvest of grain as it is a harvest of men and women plucked out of the fields of the world and brought into the family house, brought into the church. This wasn't a new plan. It came straight from the heart of God. 
Um, and so if you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, he was out and he, he noticed the crowds and he said this, he said, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And here is the first crop of of harvest workers that we see there, those early disciples, those 120 men and women who begin in that moment by the power of the Holy Spirit prophesying and speaking the magnificent works of God. You see, the very first worker, though, the very first worker that's sent out into the harvest field is God himself. The Holy Spirit, who is fully God, comes down and inhabits the hearts of these 120 or so men and women who are gathered waiting for him. He did what he said he was going to do. He opened their mouths to speak. And he made it possible for this multi-ethnic crowd that was gathered in Jerusalem for the festival. Some of them uneducated. Some of them educated. Some of the young, old, men and women. All of them were able to understand. All of them were able because those men and women had been equipped to speak in languages they'd never studied. What was their response? They were astounded. They were amazed. He said, aren't those people Galileans? Galilean, what does that mean? Aren't they all Galileans? Well, Galileans weren't known to be the sharpest uh, tools in the shed, if you like. It wasn't the most educated region of the Roman Empire. And they're thinking, how is it all of a sudden these people are like Duolingo or whatever? Like they know all these languages. What's going on? Obviously, it was the power of the Holy Spirit at work. This was about God's glory and not theirs. Verse 11, again, what are, they, what are they saying? We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Wouldn't it be if that was said of us by our kids or those that know us, that overhear us? What are we known for? What are we known for speaking about the magnificent works of God? See, who else can be responsible for uneducated people declaring the wonders of God? But God himself, he's the one who invented language. The Holy Spirit's a missionary spirit, and when he fills ordinary people like you and me, we become missionaries. We become missionaries. They become missionaries on their own timetable or after they went to Bible college or after they got a visa in a foreign land. No. The Holy Spirit decided at this moment, you are, your tongue will be released to speak the excellencies of God. And, and words like, this is not something you need a Bible college degree for. I'm all for Bible college. Love it. But they didn't need Bible college for this kind of speaking. It was, they were saying things like, I once was blind, but now I see. That's what it means to declare the excellencies of God, to tell people what Jesus has done for you. Not long-winded sermons. Sorry, that's my bag. Um, but just simple declarations of faith in Jesus. That's what was happening. And if we have the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything that you need to be a missionary like that. You have everything that you need to be a part of the work of church planting, the work of disciple making. If you don't have this longing, if you don't have a sense of urgency for more men and women to hear the glory of God in Christ, to hear the gospel, then you have to, then I just plead with you to ask, to pray, and to God to give you this longing. Because the Holy Spirit that dwells in the heart of every Christian is a missionary spirit. And you cannot go through life and not care about mission and claim to know the Holy Spirit. You, you, those, those things can't be held together. Receive the power of church planting in the grace from, of the Holy Spirit if you have not received. The second step toward becoming and remaining a church planting church is to focus on the aim of church planting. 
I want to show you from verses 14 to 21 of Acts 2. Peter stands up and he begins preaching. Not a long sermon, but verse 14. He's not, he's, he's not like standing up there in the front as like the ringmaster going, hey, look at this credible, these incredible party tricks that these guys are doing. They got the flames happening. They're speaking all these different languages. No. He says the focus is not on them at all, but the focus is on the magnificent works of God. He says, friends, there is some truth that you need to know. This is not a circus act. There's no magic tricks. There's no smoke machines here. There's no mind-altering substances happening. There's no alcohol involved in what you are seeing. This is happening because God promised it would happen. Hundreds of years ago, in one of those old books of the Bible, the book of Joel, every person, men and women from every ethnicity, young and old, will receive my spirit. And guess what? When they do, they're going to speak. They're going to speak. And that's what's happening right now. Their spoken words proceed, come before the wonders in the heavens. The prophecy, the truth spoken, that's what comes first. The miracles, the signs and wonders come after the words to confirm that the words are true. That's the aim of church planting. Not signs and wonders. The aim of church planting is that men and women would hear the truth and believe. That's it. Regardless of their background, regardless of their education, their circumstances, the number, the types of sins they may have committed, that everyone, everyone would hear these words. Everyone then would cry out to God, and then what? Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. It's a universal call to hear the truth and believe and have life in the name of Jesus. Friends, to be a church planning church, this has to be the bullseye. It can never drift to anything else than seeing men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation hear the gospel, believe, and have life in the name of Jesus. That's it. If we ever move away from that as the bullseye, then we will not plant churches, or we will certainly not plant healthy churches. We've got to maintain that to be the bullseye. We want to see men and women call on the God of grace and receive his grace for his glory and our joy. Many good things that we ought to be doing. We ought to be doing, like helping one another, helping the vulnerable, advocating for, Jews, uh, for justice, building life-giving community. Yes, yes to all those. But to be a church-planning church like we see in Acts chapter 2, we never move one inch from the central aim of seeing men and women far from God receive his grace and be made disciples. Third thing, to be a church planning church, where we receive the power of church planning, we focus on the aim of church planning, and then we embrace the urgency of church planning. God's enemies becoming his children through the speaking of the gospel. That's, what, that's the aim. The urgency. Urgency isn't a word we're always comfortable with. It's evidently a tyrant. If you've read that little book, um, even things that we call life and death matters in this life, in our everyday life, um, they are urgent. But when we compare the 80 years or so that we have to live with forever, it puts it in a different perspective. See, church planting is urgent because without church planting, men and women will not only die physically, but they will be spiritually sent out of the presence of God forever. Anything we do to prevent that fate from landing on anyone is absolutely urgent. 
Peter's sermon here in Acts 2 shows us the opposite path, the path to agony, the path to life, um, sorry, opposite to the path of agony. It's blazed by Jesus, the pioneer on the path of life. See, we read Jesus was executed on a cross by sinful, lawless people acting on our behalf. And paradoxically, unbeknownst to themselves, he was, they were working out the preordained, predetermined plan of God. Jesus, as you know, as Peter says, he did not stay dead. God raised him up. That's the path. He died and then was raised. According to David in Psalm 16 that he cites here, is, this is the path of joy. It's the only path. The path of rest. The path of hope. The path of reunion. The path of life. The path of gladness in the presence of God. It is the very opposite of hell. That is the path that Jesus blazed. And it went straight through the cross. Jesus is the first one to blaze this path. And David saw it ahead of his time. And David will one day walk that same path of resurrection. Jesus ascended then to the throne room of heaven. And from there, he poured out the promised Holy Spirit on all who will believe. He is the one who caused these first disciples to start speaking the gospel on the day of Pentecost. So why and what is the urgency? You get the first clue in verse 35. It's another quotation from the Psalms. God, he says, is making all of Jesus' enemies a footstool. That's a metaphor for their utter defeat and humiliation. To be put under the boot of the king, so to speak. And friends, time is is short. The time from now until that moment when he is supreme and visible and ruling and reigning over everything, all of his enemies in utter defeat, is very short. It is happening much sooner than you think. And you hear the urgency even in Peter's voice in 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You need to know with certainty that Jesus, the crucified one, is the only Lord, the only chosen Messiah who's going to rule and reign over everyone and everything, and he is coming. The original audience is listening to Peter, and they got this urgency because look at how they respond in verse 37. It says they were pierced to the heart. They had heartburn. Brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Oh, we killed, we killed the author of life. What do we do? We are his enemies. They got it. They knew that they needed a pardon right then and there. And that's the cry of everybody, all of us. If you understand the gospel, you've been there. You know that. You know the moment when, like we sang in the song a minute ago, it was my sin that held him there. I am guilty. It's, this was about my shame and my forgiveness, and, and I need to be made right with God. And that's the cry of the gospel that, that comes to every person. You know, a lot of people think being a Christian is just about being a nice person. It's about flying under the radar. It's about living your best life. I, don't, I didn't kill anyone. I, keep, I, I do my thing. I keep the Ten Commandments. But then the gospel comes along and says with urgency, no, you need forgiveness because you are the one holding the knife. You are the one with Jesus' own blood under your fingernails. And unless you believe that that blood is the only power to save you, then you don't have life in his name. But here's the beautiful gospel in verse 38. Peter says, friends, here's, here's what it Here's what it is. It's, to be a Christian is to repent. It's to turn 
the other direction, to turn around 180 degrees from the direction that you were walking to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. What does he say? What does he say? He says, okay, now, as soon as you do that, as soon as you become a Christian, well, then run along. Leave God alone. No. He says, after you do that, here's what happens. Receive the gift of God himself, the Spirit of God himself living in you. It's not simply a fresh start, not simply a free gift of grace and a clean slate. No. When you become a Christian, you receive the gift of God himself. How good is that? He's the only means of escape from the coming destruction. And he is the means of our hope and our joy and our gladness and our inclusion in a family. And when Peter preached this sermon just for five minutes, believe it or not, 3,000 people said, yes, I want in. I want in. This is too good. I need this grace. They rushed the stage to be saved in that moment. And that day, it's still happening. And it should still happen today. Why? Because the king is coming. He's coming soon. It's urgent. The last thing we do to become a church planning church is to cultivate the legacy of church planning. And we see this at the very end of chapter 2. Everything I've said so far is what he does through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit and the effective call of the gospel to sinners while there's still time, this last section gives us a glimpse into the marks of what a gospel-driven church planning church does. I've talked about this section before, so I'm going to just go through it real quickly. Church planning churches are devoted to the speaking of the gospel, making that the aim, getting that message across. We have no other message except the one we receive from the apostles that we have recorded for us in Scripture. The gospel is the power to save and nothing else. Church planting churches are then filled with awe at the wonders of God. And we talk about God because we're so captivated by him. Church planting churches are radically generous. We see that here with all of our stuff and all of our people. We, we, we send people. We don't hold on to people. How do we plant churches? How did this church become a thing because a church in Glen Elk said, we are generous. We see a need for people to hear the gospel and the, and the good news here in Onkapringa. So we're going to send 35 men and women out of comfort and into the unknown. We're not going to hold on to them and say, man, this is good for us because so many of the people that came and planted were serving on teams and they, it kind of like cut their worship team roster in half, cut their tithing budget hugely when we planted. It was a big sacrifice, and that's what church planting is. It's when we say, this isn't about us. It's not about building a comfortable little um, bubble for ourselves. It's about Jesus and his glory. Church planting churches are also marked by joy and thankfulness, by, by worship and regular praise of God, not just in our corporate singing, but in our living. And then finally, church planting churches are marked by multiplication, daily Daily, God was adding to their number those who were being saved, and that should be what we long for too. See, none of this is a formula, guys. It's not something that we can manufacture on our own. This is the miraculous work of God. It's what he did on Pentecost 3,000 years ago, and it's what he still continues to do today and what he will do if our eyes and our treasure are on him. If he is the center, his glory is our aim. Imagine if every adult member 
just those you saw up the front, and every adult attender here at City Light Church, walked out of this room and made a habit to say every single day to just one other person, follow me as I follow Christ. It's that kind of spirit is the spirit of Pentecost, the spirit that changes the world. It's the spirit that dwells in you if you indeed are a believer. This is the norm. It's the meat and veg of our prayers because it is the heart of God. I don't want anybody here to ever assume that God called you to this church to die here. No. You came here to, maybe to die to yourself and to your own ambition. But he's called you here to make his name big and glorious in this community and beyond. I pray specifically that God will call men and women from this church plant to plant churches in frontier areas, guys, where there are no churches, no believers at all, as well as here in our local area. We love Onkaparinga, but we also love the beyond. That's our mission statement, to be fruitful and multiplying Jesus worshipers here in Onkaparinga and beyond. The places where Christ is not named. Why? So that he... He alone might fill every space for his glory and for our joy. He is coming. He is coming. Let's be a part of this movement. Let's never stop making this the center of everything that we are about. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We remember on this Pentecost Sunday, the day that we were, that those 120 first disciples were waiting for. Jesus, you said, wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And here we are at the ends of the earth. Can't get really any farther from Jerusalem than I suppose if we were at the South Pole. And Lord, we are here. We know you. We're in a family. We're celebrating. We're going to eat food together afterwards because of what you did. You poured out your Holy Spirit on 120 ordinary people. And you continue to do the same thing again and again, generation after generation. You are faithful. And we thank you, God, as we come to the communion table as a family. Help us to celebrate your faithfulness like never before this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.